You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he, asked, and he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing that they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We're starting a new series today just for the summer. We've, we've been in Genesis uh, for the spring. We stopped at the end of Genesis chapter 11. We're going to resume that after the summer, but we're taking uh, a little bit of a break. We're going into Matthew's gospel, and we're going to spend some time looking at the kingdom parables of Jesus. Um, and the, the title of our series will be What the Kingdom is Like. I think that Christ and His kingdom um, has been somewhat confusing for many of us recently. We see things in the news, we see things that Christians do around the world, or Christians say on one media outlet, or say about politics or culture on one hand, and then we hear someone who also claims to be a Christian say something else in another way. I heard one Christian leader was interviewed, and they were asked, they, they basically made the statement that said, Uh, America is the last hope for Christianity. And the person that was interviewing said, well, don't don't you mean that? Don't you mean that Christianity is the last hope for America? And he said, no, I I meant what I said, that America is the last chance for Christianity. And is that really true? Is Is Christ's kingdom really dependent on America? Is it really dependent on politics or culture? Um, And I think we just are confused generally. And I think the world around us who is looking from the outside in on Christianity It has a confusing picture as well about the kingdom. And so I think it's a good opportunity for us to spend some time this summer just going straight to Jesus. And the phrase where he says the kingdom of heaven is like would be a great indication for us to pay attention, right? And he gives these parables in Matthew 13 and continuing on that gives a picture of what his kingdom is supposed to be like. So I think it'd be awesome for us, especially those of us that follow Jesus, to be recalibrated by Jesus' own words himself on what his kingdom really is all about, what it's going to look like, and what we should expect. And I think maybe there's some here today who aren't Christians but are kind of intrigued by Christ and his kingdom and are getting mixed messages from the outside. Man, we're going to go straight to Jesus, and you're going to get to see exactly the guy whom the religion is named after, what he said and what he did and what he intends for his kingdom to be about. So, The aim of this series is to try to cut through a lot of the noise and just go, let's let Jesus define the reality for us and then decide whether we want to be in on on Jesus' kingdom or not. Hopefully this is a clarifying thing, both for the Christian 
for us to understand what we're really meant to be about, and for those that maybe are just checking Christianity out or skeptical of Christianity, at least we'd love for you to see the right thing, the real thing from Jesus himself. So in order for us to understand these kingdom parables, we're kind of doing a dangerous thing in that the Gospel of Matthew gives a, um, is giving an argument. It's a flow from beginning to end. And so to just jump right into the middle of Matthew 13 without understanding the larger context of why Matthew 13 is the way it is, is uh, is a bit dangerous. And so what I'm going to do today is sort of set the groundwork for our entire series. The the title of today's message is, What's the Deal with Parables? What's the Deal with Parables? That's going to be our end game on where we want to end. But in, in order for us to understand exactly these kingdom parables where Jesus describes what his kingdom is like, what his kingdom citizens should be about, what the culture of his kingdom is like, what he's like as the king, We need to get a sense of what Matthew is doing as a larger book. And so I'm actually going to preach the entire book of Matthew today. And uh, this will be really exciting. I hope you brought a lunch. No, we'll go quickly through it. But but in order for us to understand what this midpoint is all about, we need to get a sense of what the whole story of Matthew is. So the first question we want to answer today is, who is Matthew? Matthew is the author of this biography of Jesus. And Matthew is, uh, first appears in his own gospel in Matthew 9, 9. So this gospel, he's writing about Jesus. He's actually inside this gospel. And uh, Matthew 9, 9 says that as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Uh, that's, that's it. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's Matthew. That's about all Matthew really says about himself. Uh, he is an ethnic Israelite man who was also a tax collector for occupying Rome. So uh, the Israelites are under the the authority and under the domination of the Roman Empire. And there had been some who saw a financial opportunity that if I collect taxes for the the governing authorities, then uh, I can make a living here. So he's kind of betraying his own people. He's, he's, he's setting up a deal with those who are dominating. And the deal was the Roman Empire went, you know what, let's get some of their own to tax them, to collect the taxes, and you charge whatever extra you want. As long as we get what we want, you can charge whatever. So tax collectors were not well regarded by their own people because they were kind of turncoats. They had, they had betrayed their own people. They had ripped their own people off. They were working for the enemy and were, in a sense, sort of complicit in the, um, in the oppression of Israel by the Roman government. So Matthew's definitely kind of a quasi-traitor to his own people. He doesn't really fit under the Romans because he's a Jewish man, and he doesn't really fit with the Jewish people because he's kind of in league with the Romans. And so that's why this idea of tax collectors and sinners is such a strong phrase throughout the Gospels of like the rejects, the sinners, the betrayers, the traitors, the sinners. And so that's who Matthew is, and he's sitting at his tax collector booth, and Jesus goes, hey, you, come follow me. And he's like, all right, and he does. And we'll see why a little bit, why Jesus has that kind of authority to just walk up to somebody and call them to follow him. And they just literally leave everything behind. He just leaves his tax booth and his life is radically changed in the moment in this encounter with Jesus. He has a front row seat to all of Jesus's ministry. So this eyewitness account in Matthew uh, of Matthew is through the eyes of someone who is actually with Jesus. Now think about it as a tax collector. He's probably a pretty good accountant. He's good at keeping track of, 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 uh, of the details of transactions. And so I think he's, we can have unique confidence in this gospel in that Matthew is the kind of person that if he's good at his job, he's got good record-keeping skills. 
And if he's just left everything to follow Jesus, he's keeping good records on what, teach, what kind of teachings Jesus has uh, and does and the things that he does. And so I think we have confidence that this gospel stands up as an accurate portrayal of Jesus and what he taught and what he did. Um, and you'll notice that as we see the details of his account. Matthew's gospel is giving an accurate history and the facts about the life and teachings of Jesus. And it's arranged to lead you to a particular conclusion about Jesus. It's making an argument for Jesus so that you'll reach the conclusion that, yes, he is the king of heaven. He is the promised one of Israel. He's the king of everything from heaven as prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures. That's really the the bottom line of the book of Matthew is he's like, I am convinced with my own eyes. He even goes to his own brutal death for what he sees and knows about Jesus and has experienced. And this gospel is his Holy Spirit inspired retelling of that story. So the message of Matthew's gospel then is that Jesus is the king of everything from heaven as described and promised in the, whole, in the Hebrew scriptures. That's really, I think, Matthew summed up is Jesus is the king of everything. In fact, the book's going to end with him saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. I'm king of everything. He's from heaven as described and promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. This is a uniquely Hebrew book. He's going to quote the Old Testament over 60 times in this book. And so it's meant to show that the king of everything has come as prophesied by the, Holy, by the Hebrew Scriptures and it's now available to everyone. So let's look at the big picture of Matthew's gospel. We're just going to run through this. If you want to flip over on your handout on the back there, I have my particular outline on, of the book of Matthew. So this is mine. You might be able to find other commentators and people who are smarter than me come up with better outlines, but this is a helpful way for me to see the gospel. So this will be our framework that we're going to run through the whole gospel of Matthew and then circle back to parables. And it'll make sense in light of the big structure. So we already saw in our study of, of Genesis that there is this, um, there's this, this way of st- structuring stories and poetry along what's called a chiasm, which means that the beginning and the end of the document are complementary in some ways, either saying the same or opposite, or one is the completion of another. And then you work your way down, and then at the midpoint you have a hinge that's either the point of the text or the turning point in the text. And so I think that's what we have in Matthew, is Matthew is using good Hebrew-Israelite structure to tell the story of Jesus, and he's arranging it around five speeches of Jesus. That serves as the skeleton of the entire book, is these five speeches of Jesus that Matthew gives his account of. Speech number one is in Matthew 5 through 7, and then he gives some connective tissue, some narrative to get to the next speech, which is about kingdom strategy in speech number two, the missional discourse. And then we have more narrative that leads us into the context of kingdom expectations and the parables that we're going to see. And then we begin to kind of make a turn in the book to where now Jesus is going to go and he becomes even more polarizing, which leads to a discussion about kingdom citizens in his fourth speech. And then he begins to confront the religious leaders in 19 through 22 and then renders just this thunderous um, uh, Olivet Discourse in 23 through 25, and then in the end, you see his victory. It looks like he's conquered, and then he rises again. And so let's just walk through this for a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and look how the whole book starts. The whole book starts with this phrase. Now, those of us that have been in Genesis, see if you don't recognize something here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And you're sitting there, you're going, another genealogy, right? Another genealogy. Do you see what Matthew's doing? Matthew is wanting us to link, to see the link between Jesus and the entire Old Testament. In fact, he's going all the way back to where we left off in Genesis 11. Because we'd gotten to Genesis 11 and now Abram, or Abraham, is now making his appearance. We just finished the genealogy last week that got us to Abraham. And guess where? Guess where Matthew now links the narrative? He goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and 12 and begins to go, yes, Jesus is fulfilling everything that comes after that. So he's putting the link to his gospel clear back in this Old Testament story about everything. And he links it in two places. One is the son of Abraham who will be a blessing to all nations. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, not, of not just Isaac as the, the promised son, but Jesus will be the promised one of all, um, a blessing to all nations. And then he links it a little bit further as the son of David, because God had made an unconditional deal, an unconditional arrangement with Abraham that through you all nations will be blessed. And then he makes an unconditional covenant again with David going, no matter what you do, I am going to put an eternal king that comes from your lineage. And Matthew starts his gospel by going, that guy, I'm going to tell you about that guy. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, the one who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so he's putting all of these links in the chain to show that Jesus is the king of everything. He is the promised blessing of all nations. He is the eternal son of David. And that's his starting point. That's his thesis right out of the gate. The promised one has come, who's the king of everything in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. So he literally starts with a genealogy so that the Jewish people would then go, oh, we know what he's doing. He's showing us that the promise of the Old Testament comes through Jesus. So he literally starts with a genealogy as a nod to Genesis. Matthew tells the backstory of Jesus in light of the prophecies he fulfills. So if you think of the rest of chapter 1 through 9, you can just flip through the pages as we go through this. In, one, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we see that Jesus has the right lineage according to the Old Testament. In verses 18 through 24, he's got the right birth story. He's born of a virgin as predicted in the Old Testament. In chapter 2, 1 through 12, he's got the right birth place, which is Bethlehem. In verses 13 through 18, the right horrific tragedy is surrounding his birth, just as prophesied in the Old Testament. In verses 19 through 22 of, or 23 of chapter 2, we see that he has the right hometown, Nazareth. Not just place he's born, but where he's actually his hometown. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we see that he is the right promoter. He's got the right press guy. John the Baptist is his forerunner, and John the Baptist clicks all, checks all the boxes for the forerunner of Jesus that was to come. And so Jesus has the right promoter. He has the right press secretary. In, in, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we see that he has the right divine authorization. At his baptism, God himself opens up the heavens and goes, this one is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so he's got the right divine auth- authorization. In chapter 4, he goes one-on-one with Satan in the wilderness. And we see that where the first Adam failed and every other human being has succumbed to temptation and sin, Jesus, even on Satan's home turf, in the wilderness, with no resources other than his own self, 40 days without food or drink, on the brink of death, still has the strength to not sin and defeat Satan, which means that he has the power to reverse the curse, to overcome sin. And so he has perfect righteousness. He is sinless. 
And then in chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, he's got the right place of influence. His ministry is in the place that the Old Testament scriptures um, predict. And so we just see in chapters 1 through 4 that Jesus has all the credentials to be the Messiah. And there's all these quotes from the Old Testament. And so chapters 1 through 4 are really kind of Jesus' resume. Matthew's like he fits the bill. Now, it's possible that one person could, could fulfill one of these. Like, if you're born in Bethlehem, well, great. Lots of people have been born in Bethlehem. But you're also from Nazareth. You also have this certain tragedy. You're also born of a virgin. You're also of the right lineage. And he's like, just do the math. This guy has the unique qualifications and credentials to be Israel's Messiah. He checks all the boxes. And that's what Matthew's doing in chapters 1 through 4. And we get Jesus saying this interesting thing in Matthew 4, 17. So if you're there, hopefully you're there in your Bible. Um, just flip through with me as I walk through this. In 4.17, Jesus begins his ministry. And it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, so even Jesus himself is coming, and Matthew is giving all of this, Jesus' credentials, his resume. He, is, he qualifies to be Jew, the, the Jewish Messiah, and Jesus himself says that. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The one who is king in heaven is now claiming this place, is now showing that he is king of this place, and that changes everything. That's really what we mean by repent, is that the king has come, and you need to switch allegiances. Like, if the kingdom of heaven has come, you need to change everything. That's what repent means, is change your mind, right? Change the direction you're going, change your orientation, change your, um, change your allegiance. And so that's what he's saying. The king of heaven has come who has the credential, and if he's standing in front of you, if he's come, then that changes everything. Repent. Change sides. Change allegiances. Bow to this king. So the one who is king in heaven is now making that kingdom visible. He's making it available to anyone and everyone. And this changes everything. Leave your kingdom, whatever it may be, and join his kingdom, and then that's the invitation. So he begins to call his disciples at the end of chapter 4, and then giant crowds start following him. And so Jesus now gives his Sermon on the Mount in chapter five through, or chapters 5 through 7, which is the first major speech in the book of Matthew. And he really gives the kingdom values of his kingdom. What is his kingdom going to be like? And so this is like a kingdom charter. The, the Sermon on the Mount is like the constitution of Jesus' kingdom. So he's got this crowd, this kingdom, he's promising this, and he's gathering these crowds, and people are really intrigued, and he goes, okay, here's the deal. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, it, and he gives this picture of the kingdom that is so opposite anything they have ever seen before. The kingdom values are completely upside down. It's not the powerful, but it's the humble. And he just, all throughout chapters 5 through 7, you get this upside-down kingdom that he is not going to be like a king that you have ever experienced before in your life, and his kingdom is going to be almost entirely opposite of your natural human inclinations. And he just lays out for three chapters what the kingdom charter, the constitution, what you can expect of Jesus' kingdom. And really at the heart of it is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. So if you want to look at that for just a moment, you have the Lord's Prayer which I, I think in many ways would be kind of a sinner's prayer, really, of like, how do, you, how do you join this kingdom? He's describing what the kingdom's like, what the values, the constitution, the, the kingdom charter, what this is like. And then he says this in verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It really serves, like this looks like the allegiance you would make to a king. If one nation conquers another nation and you make that king bow and swear loyalty to you, that's how this is structured, as, as a loyalty to a king. You are looking to this king, you want the prosperity of this king, you want him to rule and reign in every way that he wants. Um, you are trusting him for provision and protection. All of your rights and privileges come from this king. This is an oath of loyalty to a king. It's a pledge of allegiance. It's a sinner's prayer. So what's the right response to this king and this kingdom? What does repentance look like? It looks like you're going to look to this king for everything. And so you have this oath of loyalty right in the middle, which is what the Lord's Prayer is. Is like this is the heart disposition This is what a kingdom citizen, this is his disposition before the king. So if the kingdom of heaven has come and we're to repent, what does that look like? It looks like yielding everything to this king on his terms to become the kind of citizen that he longs us to be. And at the end of chapter 7, we get this clue, part of the structure of the book of Matthew. Every one of these five speeches ends with something like this, Matthew 7, 28 through 29, when Jesus finished these sayings. So that tells us the end of the speech, and that happens on each of the end of the, se- of the, of the speeches, which serve as kind of seams in the book to kind of show us what Matthew is doing. And so uh, Matthew 7, 28 through 29 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching, his teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so they get done hearing the Sermon on the Mount, and they go, The dude sounds like a king. Like, this dude sounds authoritative. Like, they're just in awe. They have never heard someone speak with such compassion and authority. Like, this guy's clearly the boss of everything. We've never seen anyone be able to command a room, command the stage like this man. He seems, they are astonished at his teaching. Which then brings us to 8 and 9, where it shows that Jesus has authority over everything. I mean, he totally, uh, he totally dominates everything. He, he come, people come to him with diseases. With, uh, he can heal over a distance. Uh, he has power over demons. He has power over death. I'm just trying to think of all the D words I can come up with. But he just shows that he has power over everything. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he cleanses a leper. In 5 through 13, he heals a servant, a centurion servant at a distance, which means that he can, he can do remote healings. He has power over space and time and distance. In verses 14 through 17, he heals Peter's mother-in-law and a whole bunch of others in fulfillment of Scripture. In verses 18 through 20, he calls a scribe to immediate, unconditional allegiance. In verses 23 through 27, he calms a storm, so nature responds to him. In verses 28 through 34, he casts out demons out of a bunch of guys into some pigs, and then those pigs jump off a cliff, which would have been wild to see, and they're like, hey, you got to go. We only have so many pigs. And so they make him leave. Chapter 9, in verses 1 through 8, he heals a paralytic. In 9 through 13, he calls Matthew and then goes and hangs out with some sinners. So he he doesn't follow the rules. He has authority over the social rules. Um, In verses 14 through 17, he teaches on fasting. Um, In in, in 18 through 26, he heals a a bleeding woman and raises a girl from the dead. All kind of in one shot. (laughs) All kind of in one story. It's a two for one. He heals a woman and raises a girl from the dead. In, in chapter 9, verses 27 through 31, he heals two blind men. In 32 through 34, he casts a demon out of a guy. And you just see Jesus' compassion for people. 
and that he has the authority to boss demons around, to boss nature around, to defeat death. He just has authority over everything. And then at the end of chapter 9, we have this compassionate where Jesus says he looks on the crowds and he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed by what? Death and disease and sin and brokenness. All of these things that he's been addressing. And there's still just so many more. And you see the compassionate heart of Jesus, not just in his actions, not just his authority is being described, but his compassion. And then he has this interesting statement. He says, he says um, actually, let me, let me look at it. Matthew 9, uh, or not Matthew 11, um, 12. Where am I? Matthew 9, that's what I was right. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he calls the, 11, the 12 to him, and he gives them authority, which leads us into this speech about the kingdom strategy, where there are so many needs in the world. There's so much brokenness. There's so much need for good deeds. There's so much need for gospel news. There's so much need for the kingdom. The things that Jesus is doing and preaching, that sermon on the mount, that he's like, I'm going to multiply myself. So he takes his 12, he gives them the authority to do what he's been doing, which would be amazing. And then he goes, go. I want you to go throughout all of the towns and I want you to go and I want you to spread the news of the kingdom and I want you to do good works in my power. And I don't want you to take anything with you. You're going to be totally dependent on me. And he gives a, f- a, a picture of what the kingdom strategy is. The kingdom strategy is not going to be to organize an army with swords to go and take back Israel. It's, to, it's going to be going completely dependent on the spirit, completely dependent on the people that you're going to go and minister to. He gives a divine authority and power to extend his kingdom in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. In 5 through 15, they're to go with a message, do redemptive things, and take nothing else with them. They're to depend entirely on him. In verses 16 through 25, in this speech about the kingdom strategy, this missional discourse, they are to be marked by weakness, vulnerability, and difficulty is going to be part of the plan. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Take heart, right? Such a strange kingdom strategy to send people out with a message and go just share the message in vulnerability and weakness. In verses 26 through 42, God is going to be at work in ways you can't see is, the, is, the, is what he's saying. You, you do the weak sheep among wolves thing. God does the powerful transforming, sorting, reward thing. You, you do the weakness thing. You do the vulnerability thing. You do the message and redemptive works thing. And God will do what only he can do. And it ends in chapter 11, 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the kingdoms. Which then brings us to 11 and 12, which is largely about Jesus just being totally misunderstood. So we're coming out of discourse number two with the kingdom strategy of weaknesses the way witnessing to his glory and his power, doing redemptive works in his name so that people might know his message and know the king is here. And the king is just totally misunderstood. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 19, John the Baptist is in jail and is beginning to doubt. He sends messengers to Jesus and just says, hey, are you the Christ? Because this thing, this kingdom thing is not looking like I thought it was. 
Jesus reassures him. In verses 20 through 30, there is woe on Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, because they are not responding as they ought to to the king. But there's a promise of rest for those who do at the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12, the Pharisees uh, are mad about them eating grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm in charge of that. So you can't really use that against me because I kind of made that. In verses 9 through 14, he, hithers, he, he heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And he actually calls it out before he does it. So a man has a little with, a withered hand or a stump or something. And just, hey, everybody, everybody, look. Is it okay for me to heal this man's hand on the Sabbath? And no one dares say anything. And then all of a sudden the hand grows back. And it's just, yep, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> and I do redemptive works on the Sabbath. Jesus is just mind-blowing. And, and uh, again in chapter 12, verses 15 through 37, he's accused of driving out demons by demons. And Jesus says that's nonsense. In 38 through 45, they demand signs. And Jesus says, no signs for you. And at the end of chapter 12, we see that even his own family doesn't really get him. Even his own family really doesn't get what he's doing. Even his own hometown, the people that grew up with him, don't really understand what Jesus is doing, what kind of king he is. Which then leads us into chapter 13, which is going to be the heart of where we're going to spend most of the summer, where he gives the expectations, except he's going to do it in a weird way. This is kind of the hinge of the book, because Jesus now changes his strategy from kind of direct teaching to now teaching in parables. And there are eight parables. And these parables kind of reach. They reach back into the Sermon on the Mount. They reach forward to the, uh, to, they, they kind of pull a lot of the speeches all together and, and, um, and, and kind of package the whole thing in these pictures. There's eight parables. Some of them are explained, some are not. Some just kind of sit there. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And it ends with Matthew 13, 53 through 58, where even people in his own town don't really get him. And so... That is an interesting thing. So, and then we come out of that speech in, in chapters 14 through 17. We see that Jesus is just that much more polarizing. It's just now there is no middle ground on Jesus. The crowd is starting to kind of pick a side. Following Jesus just isn't a great hobby anymore. It's either you're all in or you're all out. And so things really start to split hard here. And that was what Jesus intended to do with the parables anyway, was to just split those who get it and those who don't. Those who really want Jesus and his kingdom and those that really kind of just want what they want. And so you see it splits hard in, in chapters 14 through 17. John the Baptist is murdered in a really gross way at the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus feeds 5,000 people in, the, in uh, uh, almost all Israelites in verses 13 through 21. In 22 through 33, Jesus walks on water and his disciples uh, worship him. In 14 through the hem of Jesus' garment, starts healing people he has such power and authority that now people are just like brushing his garment and like whatever's bothering them is fixed and so they're just trying to like touch his clothing he has so much power and authority then he's challenged in chapter 15 on traditions and cleanliness so now you're starting to see this clashing of heads with the religious leaders is now jesus is a real threat to their power he's a real threat to them and so it's beginning to become much more openly hostile and Jesus is challenged on traditions and cleanliness. He's not following the man-made rules. Um, he goes up, way up into the north in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. I want you to look at this. So if you have your Bibles, hang in there. Uh, chapter 15, this is remarkable. Chapter 15, verse 21. And mine has the heading, The Faith of a Canaanite Woman. Do you remember our study in Genesis? The Canaanites, good guys or bad guys? 
And the bad guys are under the curse, right? Um, back, in, back in the Noah thing. Okay, so this, this is not a person that you would expect to be in on the kingdom. And just watch what happens. Jesus is going way out of his way. He is way outside the boundaries of Israel. And now we have something very interesting in that the kingdom is going to be extended beyond just Israel. He's not just going to be a king for Israel. But he's going to be a kingdom for a whole lot more than Israel. In fact, he's going to be a kingdom even for the enemies. The historic enemies of the people of God are going to have a shot at being in on the kingdom. And look at this. I just want you to see this with your own eyes. Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She's calling on the Jewish Messiah. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, and he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm Israel's Messiah. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Now think of this in the context. We just, on the previous chapter, had the feeding of the 5,000 Israelites. If you read a little bit further in chapter 15, Jesus again feeds the 4,000. But now he's, that's mostly Gentiles. The bread was given first to the, people, to the children of Israel. And then after this account, we have bread being extended. This miracle is extended also to those who are not Israelites. And she gets to be kind of the turning point in that narrative of he's going to be a Messiah for everybody. Israel first, but then for everybody. It's just a wonderful story. And so you continue on in chapter 16. Pharisees and Sadducees want signs. They want more proofs. And Jesus is not going to let them do it. He's not going to follow their rules. In verses, uh, chapter 16, 13 through 28, Peter gets it. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus goes, yes, you get it. That was revealed to you of my Father. I'm going to build my church on that confession. And off they go. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And, and Peter says, no, you won't. And now he's called Satan. <laughs> so Peter gets it right for about a minute. And then the transfiguration in chapter 17, where James and John and Peter get to see Jesus glorified. They get this ultimate experience of seeing Jesus glorified with with Moses and Elijah, and then um, coming back down the mountain, there's a demon that Jesus drives out. His death is predicted, the temple tax miracle, and that brings us to speech number four, where there's a discussion about greatness in the kingdom. What does greatness in the kingdom of heaven look like? There's this argument among them. What does it look like to be great in the kingdom? Which then leads into speech number four about kingdom citizenship. How do the citizens relate to each other in the kingdom? How does this actually work out? And we see that greatness in the kingdom is marked by looking out for each other. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not about power and might, and, but it's about how to confront one another in our sin in a redemptive way in Matthew 18. How to be marked by irrational forgiveness, that those who have been forgiven much are also those who forgive much. And we see what the kingdom citizenship has looked like. And we see it chapter 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, meaning that the conclusion of speech number 4 is over, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And then in 19 through 21, we see that Jesus has authority even over religion. Now he begins to go right at the temple establishment, the religious establishment. 
They come and question him in chapter 19 about divorce and remarriage. What side of the issue are you on on that, Jesus? And Jesus goes right back to Genesis and says, this is the word. This is the word on men, marriage, gender, sexuality, divorce, definitive word from Jesus himself, from the Old Testament scriptures. In chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, children are being um, excluded from the presence of Jesus, and Jesus gets angry and says, no, let the children come to me, and in fact, you have to be like children to be a part of my kingdom. Again, it's totally upside down. A rich young ruler comes and wants to know what, what is required of him, and it costs too much for him. He's not willing to pay the price to be a kingdom citizen. In chapter 20, we have a vineyard parable. In verses 17 through, 29, uh, through 19, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection again, and now he heads to Jerusalem. He is going to go to the center of God worship, and he's going to confront what he finds there. He's again asked by James and John, they get mom. They get mom to come, and they go, hey, could my boys kind of like be on your right and left in your kingdom? <laughs> so they, uh, James and John don't have quite the courage anymore to stand before Jesus. They're like, let's get mom to ask if we could have the good seats in the kingdom. Um, and uh, Jesus is like, you don't know what you're asking. Um, the right and left, when I come into my kingdom, the, when I'm announced to the world as the king of the Jews, I'm going to be hanging on a cross. Do you want to be on my right and left? Just be careful what you're asking for, right? And in my kingdom, it's not for me to decide ultimately who's on my right and my left in the ultimate kingdom. Verses 29 through 34, two blind men call out and say, Son of David, with the irony there is that blind men see better than those who do see. That it's not who you would expect to recognize the Messiah. The, the, the mighty religious leaders can't see Jesus. And the blind men can. Which just shows you how upside down this kingdom is and how spiritual it is. In chapter 21 through 22, we have the triumphal entry. Jesus goes in and clears the temple, which is a pretty audacious thing to do, challenging the temple establishment. He gets in these arguments throughout these two chapters with the religious leaders, and he's just unbeatable in theology. He knows his Bible better than they do. He knows theology better than they do. He knows the law better than they do. He's morally superior to them. He is a quicker thinker than they are. He, which leads to the thunderous Olivet Discourse, where Jesus on the Mount of Olives renders the kingdom judgment over the world, particularly Jerusalem. And so we have speech number five, the last of the five speeches, which is this kingdom judgment, also known as the Olivet Discourse. In chapter 23, he declares the woes on the scribes and Pharisees and laments over Jerusalem. You are not responding as I had hoped you would respond. And your leaders are hindering the work of God, and they're going to be judged for that. Chapter 24, he talks about the destruction of the temple, the end of the ages, the coming of the Son of Man, no one knowing the day or the hour. And so it's this, this striking, powerful, conquering king kind of imagery. And then in chapter 25, we have parables about final judgment, the end of the age, and eternal reward and judgment. And what's fascinating in verse chapter 26, 1 and 2, this is awesome. The speech ends and it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Yeah, that speech will probably do it. <laughs> that I probably just broke, that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. My, my judgment that my, king will, my kingdom will rule and judge over the kingdoms of man and will, will come over this particular city. 
yeah, that should probably do it. I think they're going to be done. I think they're going to be ready to kill me now. And in chapters 26 through 28, that's exactly what happened. No sooner does the speech end, but Jesus is gathered with some people and he's anointed for burial by this woman who comes in with an alabaster jar and she comes and anoints him for his burial and she's rebuked. But Jesus goes, no, this is right. She's got it right. I'm headed for burial and this was an extravagant thing and it was the right thing. It was a worshipful thing. So he's anointed for burial in this ominous way in verses 14 through 56 of chapter 26. He has the last supper with his disciples. He's betrayed by Judas and he's arrested. In verses 57 through 68, his illegal trials begin. They begin religiously and then eventually they don't get where they need to go and they don't have the authority under Rome to execute people anyway. Peter betrays him at the end of chapter 26, a bitter betrayal. Beginning of chapter 27, Jesus is brought before the Roman official Pilate and is condemned by Pilate. Judas hangs himself for his betrayal, so deep in despair that he takes his own life. Verses 26 through 66, Jesus is brutally crucified. And as you read it, the story is just unbelievable. The amount of imagery and prophecy that is being fulfilled in the death of Jesus, it looks like the king is being conquered. It looks like the kingdom is over. And I just find it fascinating that you get to the end and Jesus dies, the the veil is torn, there's darkness, there's, there's people rising from the dead. I mean, there's just, no one has ever died like this before. And when he dies, a Roman centurion who could care less about Israel's Messiah sees this man die, a professional executioner, the centurion, right? A guy who probably does this every day. Crucifixions are just ho-hum. Sees Jesus die and says, truly this man was the son of God. And you have a centurion who sees clearly what's going on when the other people don't seem, God's people don't seem to recognize what's going on, but this impartial Roman citizen goes, yeah, I've never had an execution like that before. This man was the Son of God. In chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, against all odds, Jesus rises from the dead anyway. They guard the tomb to try to make sure that there's no claims of him rising from the dead, and Jesus doesn't listen. He just rises from the dead anyway, like he promised. And then in 11 through 15, there's this cover-up story that's concocted because nobody wants him risen from the dead. None of the establishment that kind of put him to death, religious or secular or political, none of them want this resurrection story to be true. And so they come up with a cover-up story. And then look at how it ends. Look, go to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And look at how this ends. Remember, we started in verse 1 at the highest place that you could in, from a Jewish mindset. This is the son of Abraham, the son of David that's come down from heaven through this genealogy, through the Virgin Mary, come down from heaven to us. He's done all of this miraculous work. And now look at where it ends. It ends with Jesus' conquering everything. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. They're one less because of Judas. To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they, had, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's king language. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The kingdom is going to expand. It's going to expand with the kingdom values in, in, in speech one. On the king's strategy, speech two. It's going to look like speech three, the kingdom expectations. 
It's going to have kingdom citizens like speech 4, and it's going to rule and reign, and it is going to win according to speech number 5. And everyone gets the opportunity to be a part of it. All nations get to be a part of this king's kingdom if they will bow the knee to him. So that's the gospel of Matthew in one shot. Very quickly, what then is the deal with the parables? Go back to Matthew 13. A parable is this. A parable is a story that works like a simile to both reveal and conceal spiritual truth. A parable is a very complex thing. I think some people think the parables are illustrations. They're not. Not really. Because Matthew 13, 10 through 17, he, be, he tells this parable to the crowds, and then his disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them? He answered, verse 11 of chapter, chapter 13, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. So those of you that get it, those of you that are seeing the kingdom and desiring it, you're going to get more of it. And those that can't or don't want to see it, from the one who, who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This, verse, verse 13 of chapter 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah that we saw in Isaiah 6 that Bree read earlier is fulfilled. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So, for those that have eyes to see, it will bring clarity to the kingdom. For those that do not have eyes to the see, it'll bring confusion about the kingdom. It's really weird what parables do. They're not illustrations like a sermon to try to bring clarity to everybody. They divide. They take the squishy middle out. He's got all kinds of crowds following him as a hobby. And he's like, I'm just going to split that in half. And those that see will be encouraged and strengthened. And those who don't will be like, I'm out. I'm done. Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Jesus tells parables to the crowds and then explains them to his disciples. You'll notice that in chapter 13 that he gives the parable out there and then he'll draw his disciples back to explain it. And it's just a really interesting way that Jesus is going about both clarifying and concealing his kingdom. They are to reveal truth for those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, they conceal the truth for those that have different motives or agendas or simply are unable to perceive them. And so it's surprising. It's going to be surprising who proves to be in and who proves to be out. It's not what you would expect. The Pharisees, who have all the answers, who know all the scriptures, are not going to get it and they're going to be angry about it. And then you're going to have people like the Canaanite woman and tax collectors that are going to go, oh, I see it. I see it and I want in. And they're going to be in. And the parables are used by Jesus to kind of divide those two things. So bottom line for this whole series is this. One is to clarify expectations. I kind of hinted this at the beginning. This season is to give you clarity on what to expect of Christ's kingdom. Okay? Again, we have a lot of messages floating out in our culture, a lot of people saying they represent Christianity. 
And a lot of us, I think, have gotten confused on what the kingdom is going to be and what it's going to look like. And so this series is intended for those of you that are in the kingdom, that love Jesus, that want to follow him, understand what's going on and what he's doing. Many of us have concerns about the state of Christianity in our country and our world. This summer series is going to be helpful for us to make sense of what we see here and experience. We're going to see that Jesus saw a lot of this coming, and he knows how we're supposed to respond, and he isn't silent on what his kingdom is going to be like in any age, in any time. What really is a concern, what really is not a concern, Jesus will calibrate all of those things. What's normal and expected, what's abnormal and should be concerning, Jesus will give us orientation on all of that. It will clarify our expectations. All that to say the series will help those of you in this room that are very committed to Jesus and his kingdom clarify and calibrate your expectations on what his kingdom is going to be like here and now. The second thing that this series is going to do is help people come to a conclusion. This would be a great series to invite people to come who want to check Jesus out because Jesus is just going to describe it in his own words. And those that have eyes to see are going to go, oh, yeah, I get it. And those that don't are going to go, okay, that's fine. Uh, It's not for me. And that's so liberating. (laughs) There's many in here maybe that are just curious about Christianity, maybe somewhat committed, but have other things that are going on. So it's just not a priority. It's more of a hobby. Maybe you are not in on the Christian Jesus is king, kingdom thing, but you want to get a sense of what it is, this series will be, I think, helpful. Um, We're going to put the kingdom of heaven right in front of us, and I think you're going to see it for what it is, and you're either going to go, yeah, I want that, or you're going to go, I don't think that's for me. But we want to give you the real thing is the point, right? And we respect whatever decision you come to, but we want to be honest and clear about what it is, And we want to be clear on what it is from Jesus. So here's what I'd ask you to do. Bring your whole self to the messages in this series. Like just whatever agendas or whatever, just let, let's just let Jesus define reality for us in this series. Let's come with great humility, allowing Jesus to wreck and reconstruct our understanding of the kingdom. Let's let him change our expectations. It is designed for us to get clarity and to come down on one side or the other. And so come in with eyes wide open, with hearts wide open, and let's let Jesus determine what his kingdom is all about. And then out of that, figure out where he would have us fit in that. And I would just say as we close, if you are hearing this and you've heard the message of Matthew and you want into the kingdom right now, this is the word of Jesus to you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and it changes everything. So repent. Bow the knee to this king. So if you're sitting there and you're going, oh, okay, that long explanation, which actually wasn't as long as it could have been, of Matthew, is really compelling. And if his kingdom is that great and he's that kind of king I would like in right now, then just before God, repent of your sins and bow the knee to him. Come to him. That his life, his death, and his resurrection really does save completely those who come to him. That he is the king of everything. And if you will yield to him in everything, he will have you. He will receive you. He will bring you into his kingdom. So bow the knee without reservation, without hesitation, without condition. Follow him on his terms and you're in. You're in his kingdom and you will follow him and you can walk with him. In fact, the Lord's Prayer is a great prayer to pray right now. So let's bow our heads and let's all together, not out loud. You can if you want, but I'll just pray it. And you kind of in your own hearts, if you're a Christian, you can reaffirm this prayer. If you're like wanting to become a Christian, maybe from your heart of hearts, pray this along with us. Let us bow the knee before King Jesus in this way. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 
who is in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And God, we know that it's not just the words. It's not the words that save. It's the disposition of the heart before the king. And so, Lord, I do pray that there would be some in here who maybe just walking through the pages of this gospel have come to understand that they long for this kingdom, that they're on the, they're on the wrong side of this thing. They, they are following their own king. They're lost in their own sins. They are on the opposite side of this king. And I, I pray, God, that this would be the moment where someone would see the glories of the kingdom of heaven and would desire to be a part of it. So, God, we ask that you would give repentance and faith to those who desire it this morning from you. We pray that you would cleanse them of their sins, that you would give them your righteousness, that the death and resurrection of Jesus would be applied to them, and they would become happy, fruitful kingdom citizens. And for those of us that have already bowed the knee and had our hearts cleansed and renewed and been brought into your kingdom, God, help us to just understand a little bit better what your agenda is and what you're expecting of us and what we should expect of the world. And God, help us to be faithful and joyful servants of the King. May your kingdom expand um, in, the, in our hearts, our, our, our love and our affection, our allegiance to the kingdom expand in our hearts. And may it expand in our area as we share the message of Jesus with others that others might come to know him and be brought into the kingdom as well. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for the weeks that are in front of us of seeing you describe your kingdom to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.